this morning we are going to be continuing our study of the Gospel of Mark. We are in Mark chapter 8, so if you turn to Mark chapter 8, we're going to start with verse 11 this morning. Mark chapter 8, starting with verse 11. And we're going to be talking about this idea of being cautious about who you allow to influence your thinking. So Mark chapter 8, starting with verse 11, I'm going to read it together. We're going to read down to verse 21, and this is what it says. The Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and, says, and said, why does this generation seek a sign? Truly, I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them, got into the boat again, and went to the other side. Now they had forgotten to bring bread, and they had only one loaf with them in the boat, and he cautioned them, saying, watch out. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you, do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes do you not see, and having ears do you not hear? And do you not remember? When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? They said to him, 12. And the seven for the 4,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, seven. And he said to them, do you not yet understand? Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for the opportunity to look at your word together this morning. We're just so grateful, Lord, for the privilege that it is to be able to look at this passage of Scripture and to think about the things that you are communicating to us through your Son, Jesus Christ. Lord, we pray that as we look at this portion of your word together, that you'd open our eyes and our ears, that we would be able to see these things and hear these things and understand them. We recognize that, that the disciples did not quite perceive or understand these things as they were first shared it was later on when they finally understood. And so, Lord, we pray for your favor to be upon us so that we would actually understand the things that we're reading here, and then by your grace, that we would apply these truths to our day-to-day -day lives and our interactions with others and in the nature of our worship of you. So, Lord, we commit this time to you now. Prepare our hearts to receive your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So on Friday mornings at 8 a.m., and I, I did this, I've been doing this all, all year, and I, I really enjoy this, but on Friday mornings at 8 a.m., I teach a three-hour course. It's, a called biblical, it's called Biblical Perspectives on Contemporary Issues, and it's one of my favorite courses to teach because I genuinely love the subject matter. I also really enjoy just the, the genuine interest from the students that participate in the course. It makes for really useful and good discussion. And in the class, we end up discussing all sorts of issues that are prevalent in present-day society. And we also examine, as we're doing that, we look at what Scripture actually teaches about these topics. So it produces a really interesting kind of uh, conversation. And from my perspective, now you'd have to ask the students if this is their perspective, but from my perspective, the three hours goes by quickly, right? So I, I hope they feel the same way, but, you know... I'll give them the benefit of the doubt and say that they do. But one of the objectives of that course is that we would all learn to examine the role that media plays in shaping our cultural viewpoints and our generational preferences. 
That's one of the objectives. It's one of the things that we look at during the course of, of, uh, of a semester. We just look at the role that the media is playing in shaping how we're thinking and, and how we're influenced and the things that we prefer. Because there's no doubt that our culture is highly influenced by the things that we hear and the things that we see and the things that we read. These are things that, without a shadow of a doubt, influence our thinking. In fact, just recently I asked the class, if they believed that certain forms of media were actually intentionally attempting to desensitize us to various unbiblical patterns of thinking and living. And I wanted, to, I wanted to know what the class might think about something like that. And it was interesting to observe that the general consensus of the class was that they most certainly believed that popular media was being used that way that it was being used to desensitize us to a variety of unbiblical things. Now, when my children were growing up, um, this was a regular conversation we had in our home as well. We would talk about this regularly. We would even point things out that, that we noticed. And I will admit that I'm certain that there are times that when my efforts to prevent ungodly content from permeating our home, when I was trying to, to keep it out, I'm certain that there were probably times that may have frustrated my children from from time to time, and maybe at the time they didn't quite understand why that mattered to me, but now that they're older, I'm certain that they understand my perspective a lot better, and in many respects, I see them sharing that perspective. And when you look at this, we can understand this idea of the things that influence us certainly mattering in the generation that we live in, because it's so saturated with media and so saturated with information, but this isn't only an issue for a media-saturated era. This is an issue that other eras wrestle with as well. In fact, during the days when Jesus was carrying out his earthly ministry, the people of that era, they didn't have media in the traditional sense that we're used to or in the, the same sense that, that, that we're used to, but they certainly had speakers. They certainly had teachers. They certainly had philosophers. They also had other people of influence who had a major impact on the ways in which people thought and lived. And in the portion of Scripture that we're looking at today from Mark chapter 8, you have Jesus looking at his followers and speaking to them and cautioning them to be very careful about who they choose to allow to influence their thinking and their living. And it's a caution that was relevant for them, and it's a caution that's relevant for us. In fact, it's a caution that's relevant for every person who's ever lived on the face of the earth. But look again at verse 11 down to verse 13, because this sets up the context of what Jesus is talking about here. And in Mark chapter 8, verse 11, we see this. It says, The Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply. So just notice that for a quick second, this idea of Christ in the midst of this, this argumentative moment. He just sighs deeply. It says, And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, Why does this generation seek a sign? Truly, I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them, got into the boat again, and went to the other side. Now, as we've seen as we've been going throughout the, the Gospel of Mark over the past group of weeks, the notoriety and the influence of Jesus in that generation, it continued to expand. And as his notoriety and as his influence was expanding in that generation, you have the Pharisees, who are a group of religious leaders in one of the, the traditions of Judaism, and you also have other religious leaders feeling the same way. They actually felt increasing pressure to reduce the impact that Jesus was having on the culture of the day. They wanted to try and reduce his impact. They noticed people were noticing him. They noticed the crowds that were following him. They noticed the conversations that people were having about him and all sorts of things, and they resented his popularity. 
The fact that he was so popular, the fact that he was so loved, the the fact that people were singing his praises over and over and over again, they resented. They also resented something else. You know what else they resented? They resented the fact that Jesus did not hesitate to call out their hypocrisy. He would call these religious out, these religious leaders out on their, their hypocrisy. They were people that, that were uh, attempting to present themselves to the culture as being very devout people, very holy people, but they were hypocritical. They didn't actually believe the things that they claimed to believe in many respects. And in many respects, you have them demonstrating that they are much more concerned with external demonstrations of holiness than they are internal realities of holiness. And so knowing this to be the case, they became increasingly more brazen in their attempts to discredit Jesus. They wanted to legitimately discredit him in front of others, and they wanted to reinstitute or reestablish their influence among the culture because they felt like it was waning, and they wanted it back. They were jealous of the attention that Jesus was getting. And so here the Scripture tells us that the Pharisees come to Jesus again. So there's multiple times now they've done this. They're observing him and his disciples, and they come to him again, and they start arguing with him. Now, in one sense, when I look at that, I'm thinking to myself, I'm like, all right, that's pretty brazen to argue with Jesus. And then I think about the different times in my life that maybe I didn't quite like the decisions that that Christ was making on my behalf, and maybe I can point to some moments even in my own life where I think I tried to argue with him a little bit, and maybe, maybe you have felt that way at different seasons of your life. So I guess we shouldn't really pick on them too much here, uh, but at the same time, it's not a very healthy thing they're doing. They start arguing with Jesus, and what ends up happening here is the fact that he's been doing all sorts of miraculous things, that can't be denied. It can't be denied at this point because there's thousands of people. Twice he's, he's fed thousands of people. We have the, the group of 5,000 plus. We have the group of 4,000 plus that Christ is miraculously fed. They can't deny that. They, they look around. There are people that were dealing with all sorts of ailments, people that have been raised from death, people that have been freed from demonic possession, all these things. Christ has done these things, and it can't be denied. Everybody knows he's done it. They've seen these miraculous things that he's been doing. So they think, all right, we can't deny the miracles, so this is what we'll do. We're going to ask for something additional, something on top of that, as if that shouldn't have been enough, right? We're going to ask for something on top of that, and so what they do is they seek a sign from heaven to confirm that he is the Christ. They seek a sign from heaven. That's what they want from him, a sign. Now, it's interesting to read about their desire for a sign, but that's what it says here that they were, they were seeking. That's what they wanted. But it's interesting to read about because we're reading this in light of the prophetic signs that Christ has already given them. There's already things that have been demonstrated in in Scripture that Christ has already fulfilled at this point. In fact, let, let me just point out a couple here. In Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, you have a reference to a sign that would take place when the Messiah was born. This, at this point, has already been fulfilled. But there it says, therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel, God with us. That's what Emmanuel means, God with us. Christ, Jesus Christ, God with us. There was a sign, the fact that the virgin gave birth to a child, a sign already fulfilled. And how about this? In John chapter 2, verse 23, it tells us, now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs he was doing. 
It's interesting when you look at these scriptures, because you have these and many more where you see Jesus fulfilling various prophecies related to the Old Testament, doing miraculous things right there in their midst. There are clear signs that have been given to this generation. And so you have Jesus here looking at the Pharisees as they're saying, give us additional signage. Do something else for us, right? He's like, no. (laughs) I imagine people like this aren't very interested in being told no. They're also probably in their culture not very used to people telling them no. But Christ looks at them and he says no. So you have the Pharisees, they're there needling him over and over for a sign. And we're told in the midst of that needling, even in light of all the things Jesus has already done in their midst, Christ looks at this situation and it tells us he sighed deeply in his spirit. And I imagine, you know, just how frustrating that would have been for him in light of everything he's already done in their midst, fulfilling so many prophecies right there in their midst, but still not believed. They're not believing him. They're not believing he is who he says he is. They're not believing the signs they've already seen. And by the way, why do people typically ask for a sign in the first place? Why were they asking for it? Why do we ask for it? Why do a lot of people ask for it? Why do people typically ask for a sign? Most often we ask for signs because we don't want to exercise faith. That's why we ask for a sign. It's like, show my eyes something so I don't have to exercise faith. We would, we would prefer to walk by sight than to trust Christ by faith. That is the natural human inclination, which really means what we want to do is trust our own abilities. We want our eyes to be what we trust. We would rather trust our eyes than we would trust our Savior. And so here in this context, that's exactly what the Pharisees were doing. They're saying, we trust us. We don't trust you. We trust us. So give us a sign so that our eyes can see it, because I trust my eyes. I don't trust you. That's what they would rather do. And that's really the heart behind when people are asking for signs over and over and over again. I have somebody I I grew up with. He would never make a big decision unless he felt like God had given him a sign. And I remember at one point just kind of challenging him on that a little bit. I was like, you know, when you look at Scripture... Is it, is, does it seem to be God's pattern that he wants us to always be asking him for a sign, or does he want us to learn what it looks like to trust him and be obedient by faith? To trust him for things that we haven't seen. In fact, what does he say? Blessed are those who, who you know, ultimately, like if we, if we expand this broad, you know, those that haven't seen and yet believe, right? We don't have to see every last thing to believe. In fact, the essence of faith is trusting him for the things we have not yet seen, with our natural eyes, seeing these things with our heart, seeing these things by faith. But here you have the Pharisees. They don't want to trust anything but their own eyes, so they ask for a sign. And again, that's a struggle that humanity has wrestled with ever since the time of our first father, Adam. We just prefer to walk by sight instead of walking by faith. But no matter how much they attempt in this context to argue with Jesus, he told them he's not going to give them a sign in that moment. You get nothing. You get no sign. Right? And then he, it, it also tells us, then he leaves their combative presence. By the way, sometimes when you're interacting with people like that, isn't it just the greatest relief in the world to just step away? I don't know who invented this slogan. Maybe you've already heard it, but I say this to myself in certain contexts. It's like, you know, you know, self, you don't have to attend every argument you get invited to, right? You don't have to attend every argument you get invited to. And I think Jesus in that moment was like, as lovely as this is, 
it's time for me to get in a boat and say, adios, Pharisees, right? Adios. We'll catch you, we'll catch you soon. But for now, I don't want to keep sighing all day. I'm just going to get in the boat. I'm going to take my leave. And that's what he does. He leaves there, combative presence. Scripture tells us here he gets in a boat and he goes to the northeastern shore of the Sea of Galilee. So he goes and he uses this interaction. He uses this example combined with some reflection on some of the recent miracles that he's done to now turn this into a teachable moment for the disciples where he's going to help them see and help them understand some deeper spiritual matters that they were still struggling to understand. It's kind of interesting when you look at the disciples at this season of their life, one of the things that becomes very clear is that there were many things that they weren't getting yet. And in fact, their hearts were still kind of hard. We look at the Pharisees and say their hearts were hard, but the disciples' hearts at this point were still kind of hard, and they were, un- they were failing to, to uh, grasp some of the things that Jesus was doing right there in their midst. And so Jesus turns this whole thing into a teachable moment, but there's a conversation that takes place first. And when you look at Mark chapter 8, verse 14, it tells us, now, so they're in the boat together, and it says, now they had forgotten to bring bread, and they had only one loaf with them in the boat. And he cautioned them, saying... Watch out. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. (laughs) So some of the activities and some of the interactions of the disciples as they're recorded in the Gospels are rather comical. I also find it rather comical that one of the disciples, again, was the main source for Mark's Gospel, Peter. So I imagine Peter would sometimes laugh when he would recall some of these things and tell Mark, he's like, Write this down. You're never going to believe the next dumb thing we did, but just put it in there. Make sure everybody knows. It's okay. Just tell them. Just tell them we did it. It's all right. But when I look at these things, some of them, are, I think, are rather comical. This falls into the category of something that's rather comical. Um, but you, you have their mistakes. You have their seasons of hard-headedness. You have their hard-heartedness. All these things are just openly placed before us. And why does Scripture give us these things? Why does the Lord reveal these things to us in Scripture? I think he gives us these things so that we could grow in our own understanding of Jesus and his teaching and also recognize that sometimes these people that were tempted to elevate on this pedestal were people like you and me. People that sometimes took a long time to understand simple things. And I could tell you there are certain moments in my life that I look back and I think, why did it take me so long to understand that? Or why did I have to learn that lesson the hard way? Why couldn't I just soften my heart and learn that lesson the easy way? But no, I had to learn it through pain. I had to learn it through mistakes. I had to learn it through regrets. And so when you look at the disciples, you see they were just the same, just like you and I, just like you and I, uh, exactly the same, doing the same exact things. And so here you have Christ attempting to teach them in this moment, but they're really wrestling with this. And it's also a bit ironic and a bit entertaining when you read that the disciples forgot to bring bread with them when they enter into the boat with Jesus as they're traveling to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, because when you look in, in uh, the portions of Scripture just prior to this, Mark's Gospel records two miraculous feedings of thousands of people. Thousands of people. And in both instances, you have Jesus taking small amounts of bread, small amounts of fish, and demonstrating His sovereign omnipotence by multiplying the food and then feeding thousands of people, and then making sure that there were baskets and baskets of extras left over that that could be collected once everybody was completely filled. So you have those miracles happening just prior to this, and Jesus is even about to reference that. But it's just so funny. Like, they have been surrounded by 
so much bread. And now they enter into the boat, and they're like, oh, we forgot bread. How could you forget bread? You've been practically swimming in bread, right? How did you forget bread? Don't you have, like, a whole bunch of it, like, everywhere? Also, why are you even worried about it? Didn't you just see Jesus miraculously make bread appear for thousands and thousands of people? Why is this a debate? Why is this an argument? You know he has the capacity to make bread just show up, right? And they're worried about it, and they're talking about it, and it's like the biggest thing on their mind. And uh, so you have Jesus looking at this, and he uses this opportunity, this opportunity of their discussion about the bread, to caution them about something. And he says, all right, if we're going to talk about bread, let's talk about what helps produce bread. Let's talk about leaven, specifically the leaven of the Pharisees and Herod. Now, I can imagine as the disciples are hearing this, they're thinking, wait, the leaven of the Pharisees and Herod, did anyone get yeast from either of those guys? Like, anyone get leaven from them? What's he talking about? Now, I'm not a baker, but in my, I'm legitimately not a baker. I've never baked a single thing in my life. This is what happens when you marry Andrea Stange. You never have to bake, all right? I married her the day after I finished college, so I entered into my adult life never having to learn how to bake. I can't bake anything. I can eat baked goods. I can recognize baked goods. I even know some of the ingredients that go into baked goods. I know how bread is prepared, right? I'm aware that it takes just a little bit of leaven, a little bit of, little bit of yeast to cause a batch of dough to rise. Here ends my bakery knowledge, right? <laughs> but what does it do? It works its way through the dough, and it completely alters the end product. If you put it in there, you get a different product than if you leave it out. And so Jesus uses this. It's like, all right, if the disciples are only going to talk about bread, this is all they talk about. If, if your life is such that all you're going to think about and argue about is bread, he's like, all right, here's what we're going to do. I'm going to try and help you understand deeper level theology on a level that you understand. We'll start with what you understand that will work outward, right? We'll start with bread. And he mentions this to help the disciples understand when he talks about beware of the yeast of the Pharisees, beware of the leaven of Herod. He's trying, to, he's trying to help them understand that they need to be keenly aware of the false teaching of influential people because even a small amount of false teaching can have a big impact on the lives of others. It could work its way through your mind. It could work its way through your life could have a big impact on the lives of others. And by the way, that's a caution that's particularly relevant for us today as well, isn't it? It's not just something for this generation of people that are referenced here in Scripture. It's, it's relevant for us as well because we're being taught and we're being influenced every single day of our lives. We very much live in what's called the information era, right? And because of that, we're being taught in all kinds of contexts. And anything we allow to permeate or infiltrate our minds, it has the capacity to work its way into every single area of our lives. And if we're, like, it, for example, if we're filling our mind with vulgarities, you're filling your mind with vulgarities, what will end up happening is you'll become desensitized to those things, and then you'll drift toward becoming vulgar yourself. It's very obvious. It's, it's not a shock. If you fill your mind with something, it comes out of your life. If we fill our minds with greed, if we fill our minds with impurity, if we fill our minds with violence, if we fill our minds with immorality, we can expect those things to appear in our lives. They will sneak out of our lives. What we feed our mind is going to come out in our lives somewhere. And that's also the case with false teaching. 
as was being disseminated by the Pharisees. The Pharisees were not concerned with issues of the heart. These were things that didn't really seem to concern them. Their main focus was, was not on the life of faith that a genuine believer might ex express. Their primary concern was adherence to external regulation and the appearance of holiness, but not genuine holiness, not genuinely following the Lord by faith. Now, the fruit of actual holiness, as the Lord produces that in our lives, as we trust in Jesus Christ and receive the gift of forgiveness and the gift of His righteousness that gets added to our account, the fruit of that kind of holiness, something given to us by the power of the Holy Spirit, that's a wonderful thing. And that becomes very visible in our day-to-day -day lives. But among the Pharisees, that was very far from their minds. All they really cared about was external regulations and the praise that they wanted to receive instead of Christ receiving praise or adulation. I love what it tells us, by the way, just as a, a reminder to us to be very thoughtful about the things that we allow our minds to be consumed with. In Philippians chapter 4, verse 8, it tells us this. It says, finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. These are the things to focus your mind on, right? Think about these things. Not all the things that are going to produce corruption, not all the things that are going to produce violence or immorality or anything of that nature. Think about these things, right? The things that are, that are true, honorable, just, and pure, the things that are lovely, the things that are commendable. If our minds are going to be adept at these things, if our minds are going to become adept at thinking about what's true and honorable and lovely and commendable, we need the power of the Holy Spirit to open up our eyes and help us receive the truth. We truly do. Naturally speaking, we don't notice those things. Naturally speaking, we gravitate toward the opposite. Now, the most prominent way that the Holy Spirit opens up our eyes to understand those things is actually through the Scriptures. And so that's why we carve out time at the start of each week. I'm so grateful that we have this time together. Every Sunday morning, we gather together, and we're starting off our week the right way, opening up the Word of God and taking a look and see what the Word of God reveals, and hopefully by the grace of God, growing in our walk together as the Holy Spirit opens up our eyes and our ears and our hearts to understand, see, and hear the things that we're reading. The most prominent way the Holy Spirit reveals truth to us is through Scripture. He gives us the Word of God to enlighten us, gives us the Word of God to illuminate us. Scripture makes us wise. Scripture helps us to become discerning. And with the tool of the Word of God that we've been blessed with, and I'm so grateful for it, we're also able to identify false teaching and bad doctrine. Because if you become adept in the Word of God, you'll spot that stuff. And the Holy Spirit will bring to your mind, He'll help you remember what you've read in the Word of God, and you'll, you'll notice, you'll pick up on false teaching. You'll discern bad doctrine. You'll also be able to confront the deceptive attempts of Satan, who is, who is in an ongoing attempt to get this entire planet to, to buy into his deceptions. You will notice the schemes of Satan, and you won't give in to them. In fact, remember when... Uh, when Satan was tempting Jesus with all sorts of things, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life, he was trying to tempt him in all these, ad, these areas or categories. What did Jesus do in response to those temptations? He confronted Satan with the Word of God. He spoke the Word of God. He says, you know, the Word of God says, 
The Word of God says, the Word of God says, and Satan let him, just left him at that point. And we're in the same spot, aren't we? If we know the truth, if we discern the truth, we're less likely to give in to deception. We're less likely to give in to false teaching or bad doctrine. And Jesus was trying to explain this to the disciples, but they're not really getting it. They're mainly just thinking about bread. And even as he's trying to use the analogy of leaven or yeast, they're still thinking about, yeah, so bread, right? We're talking about bread. And Scripture tells us when you get back to the Gospel of Mark, starting with verse 17 there of chapter 8, it says, And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Like, for real, guys? Like, why are you discussing this? Of all the things, of all the things, why is this like this consu- Now, I have good friends, right? And when I hang out with my friends, there are a few things that we talk about, and food is pretty high on the list, right? And typically when we get together, what, what kind of context do we get together in? Food, right? I have a couple friends that I meet, and we drive a distance every year just to get chicken wings together, right? We do it every summer. We'll go, we'll pick a new place that someone heard was good, and we'll drive, and sometimes I'll drive two hours to have chicken wings with these guys once a year. And we're like, hey, this is great. See you guys next year. We'll do that over food. And what do we talk about while we're there? Some important things, but also food, right? So we got the food in front of us. We drove to get the food. We're talking about the food. And then we talk about the next time we're going to get food. So I actually get this a little bit, and you probably do too. And Jesus is looking at them, and he's like, you realize there are deeper things to talk about than just food. It's like, true, but one of the best things to talk about is food. <laughs> but he said, why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? He's like, how could you not get it at this point? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? And by the way, what has he done? Up to this point, he's been curing people of blindness, curing people who had hearing issues. And he's saying, don't you get it? Like, I'm, I'm opening eyes, but not just physical eyes, the eyes of your heart. I'm opening up ears that haven't heard. I'm giving bread. What's the bread? The bread is ultimately himself. He's saying, I will satisfy you like no bread ever could. Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not yet do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000? How many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? Keep in mind, they were the ones picking up the bread, right? He's like, how many, broken pe- how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, 12, right? That had to be a little bit of an awkward conversation. It's like, who wants to say it? Peter, say it for us. 12, group consensus was 12. Yes, 12. And then, and the seven for the 4,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, seven. And he, and he said to them, do you not yet understand? Do you not yet understand? Now, it's somewhat amazing to realize when you look at a portion of scripture like this, just how earthly minded the disciples really were at this point, very earthly minded. At this point of Christ's ministry, you would think that after hearing his teaching, watching the miraculous work that he was accomplishing in their presence, all of these things... And now Jesus speaking of the leaven of the Pharisees, all of this, but the disciples just can't get their mind off of physical bread. Their hearts, to use a bread analogy, we could say that their hearts were as hard as a stale crust, right? Their hearts were hard. The eyes and the ears of their hearts remained in a state of being unable to perceive spiritual realities. Very simply, they did not understand what Jesus was trying to explain to them, 
They were, they were still a bit dull to spiritual things. But here's the thing. I always look at a portion of Scripture like this, and in my mind, it usually goes like this. I start off by picking on the people that are in the Scripture, and then I realize, oh, I'm just like them. I'm exactly like them. And I don't always realize that part first. I just I realize it after I spend a little time laughing at other people, and then I'm like, nope, I'm just like them. Because in our case, it's likewise very easy to remain in a state of lacking true spiritual understanding, even though the truth has been presented before us repeatedly. I've oftentimes thought about how many times did I hear the message of the gospel before my eyes were even open to it, my ears heard it, my heart accepted it. I have no idea, but I bet you I heard it many times before I ever even considered trusting in Jesus Christ with my heart and with my life. But here's the thing. This doesn't have to be the way things are with us forever. We don't have to remain spiritually dull and, un- and lacking understanding. In fact, I actually thought it would be useful and interesting to kind of finish up our time together this morning by just making a few suggestions that I actually hope will be very practical and very useful if, you're dis- if, if you have the genuine heart desire to actually understand the teaching of the Word of God and the practical application of the gospel of Jesus Christ you actually want to understand these things, I actually just have a few quick, practical suggestions. Nothing that will surprise you. In fact, you could probably predict most, if not all of them. But the first one is this, start with prayer. Start with prayer. Spiritual truth is not something that is naturally perceived. You know, when we're thinking about like spiritual truth and how it's actually perceived, it's not perceived naturally. And this is the spot the disciples were stuck in. Jesus is talking about the leaven of the Pharisees, the leaven of Herod, the false teaching, the bad influence of these people. And they're like, yeah, bread. We think about bread a lot. Spiritual truth is not naturally perceived. It's spiritually perceived. So we need to pray. And what happens is we pray, so we come before the Lord, the Holy Spirit, He delights to help us understand things that our natural mind cannot grasp. He loves to do that. It's a favor that God, the Holy Spirit, does for us. So seek his intervention. Ask him to bring clarity to your mind. I remember the first time I ever heard this, I had a Sunday school teacher when I was about nine years old, I think, who would just tell us, maybe I was 10, somewhere in that, in that range, she, she said, listen, before you open up the Word of God, just pray for a moment. Just pray that the Holy Spirit helps you understand what you're reading. So utilize his guidance to help you understand the Word of God, because spiritual truth is spiritually perceived. Start with prayer. Actually ask for divine help to understand these things, because naturally speaking, we wouldn't understand these things. But here's another suggestion. Saturate your day with Scripture in multiple ways. Now, what do I mean multiple ways? What am I saying with this? Like, now, first of all, let's just acknowledge there are many options available to us. There's all sorts of options available to us in this era in which we live in. And if you're not somebody that's, that's used to reading Scripture regularly, sometimes when I'll talk to people about this, and I'll be like, yeah, just make it part of your pattern to read, read the Bible. And people look at the Bible, and they're like, it's gigantic. Well, here's the thing. Most of us are accessing the Bible from our smartphone apps at this point, so you that could be out of your mind. You don't even have to think about how big the Bible is, right? It's just an app. It's just another box on your phone. Just tap it and see what the Lord has for you in there. But if you aren't used to reading Scripture regularly, if that's not yet a pattern in your day-to-day life, I'd actually just encourage you to start small. Just start with a small section in the, in the morning. Even just reading one verse. 
All of us have time to read one verse, right? Just open up a Bible app on your phone or a verse of the day app and read that. How long will it take? Nine seconds? Maybe 10 if there's a comma in the verse? (laughs) It won't take long. And that could be a great place to start. But then I'd encourage you to even do other things, things that can even be done somewhat passively. Follow that up by listening to things like podcasts. Follow that up with that, like, you know, good Christ-centered podcasts, right? Or music that speaks the truth of the Word of God. There's so much good music that references the truth of God's Word. When you're scrolling through online content, which all of us do, watch videos of solid preachers and teachers who know how to accurately explain the Bible. That's what I mean by saturate your day with Scripture in multiple ways. There's all kinds of ways we could do it. You could use technology to even help you. You could do it passively. Just surround yourself with with good Bible teaching in a variety of ways. But here's one other suggestion I have for us. Very practical, and I think it matters. Don't just do this alone. This is where I think the whole plan fails for, for some people because they try and do too much of this by themselves. So think of your family. Bring your family with you. Right? Your spouse and your children, they will likely find spiritual matters interesting. You know, so many of you, and I, I love when I see this, I see, I see you bring your families here to church on Sunday mornings and for midweek events and other things like that. I, I, I watch, you know, adults bring their children to these things. That, that's a wonderful thing. Bring your family with you. Your spouse and your children are very likely to find spiritual matters interesting. Or how about this? If you could put up with this, maybe they'll absolutely hate it at first. And that also makes for interesting conversations, you know? It's still useful. But talk about, talk about these things around the dinner table. Talk about these things when you take a walk together. Talk about these things when you take a car ride together. That was my favorite thing when my children were, were little. To, they're trapped. They're trapped. It's like, you're trapped. We're going to talk about some stuff now, right? And I would look for the opportunity, and I was like, and there it is. Now we talk. And I think I've told you this before, but they started referring to long drives as car school. They're like, okay, we're in car school now. And it's like, yeah, you're in car school. Both your parents teach. Get ready, right? But here's another thing. Develop some friendships with people who also care about their walk with Jesus because their faith will strengthen yours and your faith will strengthen them. The idea is don't just do this alone. And I think that's really where some people get tripped up. They think, okay, you know, I do want to saturate my day with Scripture. I, I agree that, you know, that starting with prayer, that makes a lot of sense because these things can only be spiritually discerned. But people do this very privately and very, very much in solitude. And then they wonder why, there's, why, why it's easy to veer off track. Well, it's less easy to veer off track when you're doing some of these things with people because you could build one another up, hold one another accountable, all of that. Jesus' disciples, when you look at them, and you look at the things that Scripture here reveals, his disciples prove that it's very possible to live and serve in close proximity to Jesus without fully understanding or appreciating the very things that he's trying to communicate. They're literally seeing these miracles with their eyes. They're, they're watching him raise the dead. They're hearing him teach. They're collecting the baskets of bread pieces, and they're still not getting it, right? So you have Jesus cautioning them. And he's cautioning us. It's not just for them, it's also for us. He's cautioning us to be very careful about what we allow to influence our thinking, and we could say the thinking of our households. 
Be very careful what leaven, what yeast you allow to work through the dough of your life or your home. Be very careful about what you let in because our influences impact our beliefs. And our beliefs influence our thoughts. And our thoughts inform our actions. And our actions not only impact the lives of those around us, but they also demonstrate the sincerity and the maturity of our faith in Christ. Be very, very careful what kind of yeast, what kind of leaven you invite in. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for your word and for just the privilege that it is to be able to look at these things together and to think about what you were communicating to the disciples. Lord, we know that in the moment they didn't quite get it, but we also know that soon after they did and that you allowed them to understand these things so that they could teach others. But many of these lessons they learned the hard way, just like many of these lessons we've learned the hard way. But Father, we pray that we would be very cautious about what we allow to influence us. We pray that we would hold our influences up to the teaching of your word. We pray that we'd be very cautious about what we allow our children to be influenced by. What kind of yeast, what kind of leaven we allow to work its way throughout our home and into their minds and into our minds. Lord, help us to be very careful related to all of it because it's very easy for us to kind of let our guard down. And in this era where all sorts of influences are coming at us all the time from our, from our phones, from our radios, from our televisions, from our computers, from billboards, from conversations, from people of influence, from people who seem to have a, an abnormal amount of sway on the culture, and from Satan himself who tries to delude and deceive humanity into believing all kinds of falsehood. We know, Lord, that it's easy for us to fall prey to these things. But Lord, we pray that by your grace that we would see right through them, that your word would be just something we would internalize, that your spirit would bring the truth of your word to our minds, that we would remember everything that your son Jesus Christ taught during the course of his earthly ministry, that, that we would remember these things and that by your grace that we would live these things out. Thank you so much, Father, for your presence with us right now. Thank you for bringing these things to our attention. And Lord, we pray that as people observe our lives, that they would observe the change that's taken place in our perception, in our thinking, and in our living because of the presence of your Holy Spirit, whom we've received after trusting in your Son, Jesus Christ, for salvation. So we pray that our trust would be sincere and that we would walk by faith in all contexts of life, not trying to test you for a sign, but trusting you and being obedient in every context that you place us in. We love you, Lord. We commit ourselves to you now, and we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.